If you are first time today, you have missed out on a, I think, this fourth week now in our series on worship. What we've been trying to say through a variety of different ways is that worship is ultimately the language of your heart. It's the same as prayer. It's just another form of prayer because prayer is not a following of a formula where you have to start with uh, adoration and then you go to confession, then you go to thanksgiving, or whatever formulas you were given as a, ch- as a child. Worship is not, first you've got to come in, take the offering, hear the announcements, listen to the music, hear a sermon, go home with something ringing in your ears of all of that. It's not a formula. Worship is heart. Prayer is heart. Prayer is simply responding to God the way you feel at that moment in time. Read this, the whole book of Psalms. Man, one day David is praising God, the next day Asaph is cursing God, and the next day somebody's doing this, that, and the other thing because that's how they are feeling, and they're bringing it to God. Not every day of worship is you come in here and you walk away lighthearted, but Hopefully you come and say, God, I am so broken right now. My blood is just squirting out on the ground all over the place. Will you just touch me this morning? Will you just heal me? And other times we come in and our hearts are overflowing with thanksgiving and, and we just let it just flow out of us. The other reason that we bring this series to you this morning is this, this, in this season is because If you look at Revelation 13, it describes the Antichrist. The Antichrist, unfortunately, I don't think for a minute, is some computer over in Switzerland waiting for you to get the OID tag in your skin so it can peg you for the rest of your life. The Antichrist is anything that you depend on besides Jesus Christ to save you. Thessalonians says that the spirit of Antichrist is already among us. But the antidote to the Antichrist in Revelation 14 is that we worship God. That the only way that we really have to counteract the influence of the Antichrist is for us to immerse ourselves in worship. Isn't that cool? So for that reason, we bring this series to you. And as we begin this morning, let's just bow our heads and ask God to pour his spirit into us to hear what we have to say. Lord, we just, uh, we love you. We want you to know that your sacrifice in sending your son down here to show us what you're like so that we don't have to worry about the future. We don't have to worry about the fact that if we do get saved and go to heaven, that you're going to change your mind halfway through our life and, and you become this mean ogre. But rather you're going to be the most sensitive, in tune, awesome, creative, loving, sustaining, encouraging, empowering being there is in the universe. And we just want you to know that we love you for that and invite you to just fill us this morning. Hold nothing back for us as we try to attempt to figure out how we can respond in more amazing ways to you all that you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. St. Augustine, way back in the 5th century, wrote this, the whole life of a good Christian. I like that. 
good Christian. <laughs> because all too often we equate goodness with behaviors. Church standards, you're a good person if you didn't commit adultery and you didn't murder anybody and you didn't steal from anybody today. Why aren't church standards what the New Testament is, which says, are you loving, are you peaceful, are you long-suffering, are you kind, are you merciful? That's the church standard of the New Testament. The Old Testament is negative. The New Testament is always living out the life, right? So the whole life of a good Christian is this, holy longing. Don't you like that? Holy longing. I love that phrase. In other words, if we're back in the Puritan church and we had the old deacons coming along with the old bonk stick, you know, to keep you awake during sermon, they'd bonk you on the head and say, how's your longing today? Not how did you screw up this week, not how did you really mess up the world around you, we need to put you out in the stockades, no. By the way, that's still a pretty bad way of looking at Puritans. They weren't that bad all the time. They were an amazing group of people. Holy longing. I think if there's any two words that we could attach to worship, and if you're going to go to sleep shortly hereafter, just hang on with that, okay? Holy longing. That when we're talking about worship, we're talking about holy longing. So let us long because we are to be filled. That is our life, to be exercised by longing. When God made us in the very beginning, he left out that one thing that we've all wanted, which is completeness. He made us lonely. He made us with the ability to long, to be completed. And ultimately, that longing is to be completed with him. That's what worship is. That's all that worship truly is, is that. Revelation twenty-two seventeen: the spirit and the bride say, come. This is an invitation. This is, this is God inviting you to the intimacy of relationship with him. The last words of scripture are this. Come, I long for you. Do you long for me? Let's get our longings together. You and I, it's a picture of us panting, longing, desiring to be in the presence of our bride, Jesus Christ. The older Christian vows than the ones that you and I were married to, married with, which said, you know, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for sickness and health, and, and even, the, even older than the one that asked the wife to obey the husband, I, that one got left out of my vows. I don't know how, how it did with yours, but that one got deleted. There was no more, now, Bev, will you obey Bob? Because, number one, she was never going to commit to that. But older than all of those is this tradition that has been lost through the years, and it's this, with my body, I thee worship. With my body, I thee worship. Maybe our forefathers weren't all that prudish after all. Maybe they understood sex far better than we do today. To give yourself over to another, passionately, intimately, nakedly, to adore that person's body, soul, and spirit. 
the personality, the intellect, the essence of that person to worship the totality. It's what Jesus said in Deuteronomy 6, and he repeated it in Matthew, to love God with all your heart, your body, your soul, and your might, right? Completely absorbed in the longing and the desire. There's something special, almost sacramental about this, is there not? It requires trust, it requires abandonment, and it requires a wholehearted devotion to the other. What else can this be but worship? That's when you commit yourself to a person, you are worshiping that person. God employs explicit sexual language here, and if you're, if you're under 18, this comes with an R rating this morning a little bit, and be careful because I'm a psychologist, so I can, I can go off the rails. So if you want to write to get another Connect card and complain to Marie, she'll, she'll take all the complaints. God employs explicitly sexual language in, in, in trying to explain his relationship to us. He doesn't hold anything back. His faithfulness to us and our lack of faithfulness to him. I mean, there's a whole book of Hosea wrapped around sexual impropriety in, 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 as an illustration of us breaking our bonds with God. The Song of Solomon is, is, is amazing, and one of the, one of the uh, contexts of Song of Solomon is, is God's foreplay and his desire to arouse us to love him and to respond to him. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand caresses me, and his banner over me is love. All those songs we used to sing way back when, those were all rooted in the sexual desire that God has for us, the spiritual desire expressed in sexual language. Why? Because sexual intimacy is about as close as we can get to this holy longing that we have for God. And it's for this reason that I think that the sexual intimacy among human beings is the number one attack of the, of the demonic forces because they want to diminish this. They want to take this back to something indistinguishable from what God has wanted it to be in the first place. Because what happens was, is, is just like with everything else. I mean, you, if you look at the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament was physical, right? There was a physical sanctuary. There was a physical Ten Commandments. There was a physical Sabbath day of rest. There was a physical this and a physical that. In the New Testament, all of that becomes spiritual. That, that God dwells within us. Our hearts are the tabernacle. Our hearts are the sanctuary. The law of God is no longer on tablets. It's written in our hearts. And spirit communicates directly with us. All those things that, are, that were in the physical realm in the Old Testament get transferred to the spiritual. Well, what the devil does to do is take that spiritual and roll it right back into the physical. And so we get preoccupied with law, and we get preoccupied with the physical realities of things, and, and we're looking for, like Peter did on the transfiguration, can we just make a little building here so we can house all of this together? We worship sex because we don't know what else to do with our longing. And so our, the human dimension says, well, if you have longing, then this is what you do. You have a physical act, and that's supposed to sustain your longing. And what God says is that that, that is not even the beginning of the answer to that. So we may not know what to do with longing, but when we enter into worship, we do. 
Paul Kreeft, in his book, Everything You Wanted to Know About Heaven, writes this. This spiritual intercourse with God is the ecstasy hinted at in all earthly intercourse, physical or spiritual. It is the ultimate reason why sexual passion is so strong and so different from other passions, so heavy with suggestions of profound meanings that just elude our grasp. That it, as, as we know, it just opens up this whole panorama of, wow, there's this infinite door I just can go through here and I will never reach the end of it. I'll never experience all of it. I, I just want to keep going and exploring and, 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 and expanding my understanding of this. The problem is, is that most of us have such disappointing histories and experiences that it clouds our understanding of this. We become a little cynical as, as a society and as people because we don't really think that intimacy can be experienced. We've given up some hope. We've abandoned our desire for soul oneness. We have sought merely the physical act of sex. And we think that that is going to ease our pain and our loss and our loneliness and our soul aloneness. The full union is no longer there anymore. Many of us have been deeply hurt. Sometimes we must learn from what we have never known yet so that we can apply it back in in the, in the spiritual realm as well as in the physical realm. God's design is that the two shall become one flesh. That's how he made it. The two become one. The physical oneness was meant to be the expression of our total interweaving of being together. And it was the culmination of several steps. If you go to the first sermon ever preached, was God's sermon there in the garden marrying Adam and Eve. Short, that's what I like about God, is sermons are always short. But he says, first of all, you've got to be mature enough to separate yourself from your parents. So 16-year-old girls probably are not ready to get married unless you're out in the frontier 200 years ago, okay? You've got to be mature enough to separate yourself from your parents. Number two, you've got to choose to commit to each other. Love is a choice. Love is not a feeling because it doesn't take long after the honeymoon for those feelings to sort of sink somewhere and you've got to rekindle them every once in a while, right? Love is a choice. You choose to love this person no matter what. Then it says the two of you should become one. That's not the sexual intimacy. The oneness is learning each other's languages, learning the idiosyncrasies and the worldviews and the understandings and the perspectives and, and meshing two diverse lives into one. That's a, the, the trip of a lifetime. And then... In the, in the willingness to enter into those things, then it says the two of them were naked, the intimacy, the thing that we've all wanted. And, of course, the crazy devil just reverses all of that. And the first thing, oh, you can have intimacy anywhere in the backseat of a car, in a motel, over the weekend, whatever. You don't have to have all those other things. And what you're doing is you're selling out intimacy for experience. So God's design is that the two of us become one. The total interweaving of our beings, no more alienation between us. 
This thing doesn't happen unless you've removed the barriers, right? You've worked at removing those barriers. We're known as we are. No more masks, no more hiddenness. We are naked and exposed just for who we are. And then the experience takes us beyond ourselves into another realm altogether. We lose sense of time and place. Mike Mason wrote, For the great masses of people, sex is the one force that can actually tip men and women completely off their accustomed centers of gravity and lift them, however briefly, right out of themselves. Our hearts live for that experience. We were made for that type of experience that fills our beings with a joy that is so deeply in awe of the other that we're barely aware of ourselves, and then this gets transferred into worship, worshiping God, the same thing. Many people have a hard time understanding that this level of intimacy with God is available to us now not just in some surreal future somewhere, but that can be experienced right now. For their entire lives, they have related to God in a distant, proper way. Oh, yes, we know how to behave. We know how to dress. We know what to do. We, need to, we know when to stand up and sit down and how much offering to bring and all that kind of stuff. But our worship services don't get anywhere near many times something like our wedding nights, do they? And yet that is precisely the image that God plants in our brains. When he talks about wanting to be with us, he is talking about the wedding feast of the Lamb, the bride's party when we all get to heaven. We're going to celebrate. Before we begin, we've got to put out of our mind these things, of these more and more typical, unfortunately, weddings that we go to now, especially those that are marrying outside of faith in Christ. It seems like the religious sacramental stuff takes about five minutes and then the party starts. It's all about the party, right? They forget about the fact that the party is the result of this willingness to come into this soul awareness and this bonding together with each other. Uh, But we need to put away all those things where we're Well, if if you grew up in a church like I grew up in, couldn't drink, couldn't dance. So what do you do at a party, at a wedding party? You eat mints and ice cream and cake and punch, Hawaiian punch. I hate Hawaiian punch because it takes me back to those days. And you're sitting around with styrofoam cups trying to be nice and talk to each other and everything's quiet and the bride and groom finally come in after all the pictures. They cut the cake, everybody applauds, throws a little rice, and it's all over. That is not the kind of wedding that God is talking about here. He's talking about a Jewish wedding, an an Italian wedding. Okay? Uh, He's talking about let's get down and let's enjoy this time. There's dancing at this party. Okay, Jeremiah 31, 13, then maidens will dance and be glad, young men as well as old. Even Bob Bretch will dance, which is my wife's been waiting for that experience for quite a long time. There's feasting at this party. 
Isaiah 25, verse 6, On the mountains the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. Forget the non-fat stuff. You're going to have mashed potatoes and gravy. You're going to have the fat on the T-bone steaks. You're going to have it all, okay? The rich foods of your heart's desire because we're going to party and we're going to eat well. And then, unfortunately, for some of our more conservative friends, there's going to be drinking at this party. Isaiah 25, verse 6, a banquet of aged wine. The best of meats and the finest of wines. Don't you want to go to that kind of a party? In fact, at the Last Supper... Jesus said to us, he says, listen, this party is so real to me and so rich, and I want it so badly, I'm going to limit my intake of all of this until we all get together at the very end of the age. Then God is going to pop the cork, and the party is going to begin. Now, I came across this description of God, and it moved me, and I hope it does you, and I I just want to read it through. It goes like this. His strength is dangerous yet inviting. His being is mysterious and beautiful. He is tender and alluring. He is jealous beyond belief. He will fight for his own. He will scream in agony when abandoned. He will love when there is no reason to. He will forgive before he's ever asked. His passion is so intense it burns like fire in your soul. Don't you like that? Now, because God is neither male or female, I'm going to say the same thing again, only I'm going to put it in the feminine so us guys can relate to it a little bit better, okay? Her strength is dangerous yet inviting. Her being is mysterious and beautiful. She is tender and alluring. She is jealous beyond belief. She will fight for her own. She will scream in agony when abandoned. She will love when there is no reason to. She will forgive before she's ever asked. Her passion is so intense it burns like fire in your soul. You getting it? Worship is just this. Entering into the emotional, the physical, the intellectual reality of God's presence. When Bev and I look at each other after all these years, 45, 46, don't ask her, she won't remember. She just knows it's a long time. But when we look at each other, our look includes our history, our ups and our downs, our good times and our bad times, our present, our past, our future, our children, all the times that, that we have had to say to each other, no matter what you do or say, I'm still going to love you and you're not going to make me stop loving you. We understand as we look at each other that there's still, learn, still things to learn and grow into. And then we also can remember the times with, with our, my body, I, thee, worship. 
And when our spirits got together in our, in our, our minds and our passion and our, in our perspectives and, and all of the dynamics of whatever our lives represented at that moment in time, where we worshiped each other with our hearts and our bodies and our minds and our souls. God invites us to that same experience. You're going to have the same dynamic with him. There's going to be the ups and downs of your relationship with him, the times he's let you down. Don't tell me he hasn't let you down. God is so much bigger than us that if he doesn't shock us and surprise us on occasion, he's not much of a God, is he? If he only conforms to your desires and wants and wishes, he's a sort of a milquetoast God. The times he's let you down, the times he's lifted you up, the times he's forgiven you, the time he's empowered you, the time he has encouraged you, the time he has simply said, hey, listen, you are the apple of my eye and I really like you. God invites us to this same experience with him. Three elements here if you're taking notes. First of all, this relationship with God is based upon trust. Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet I hope in him. Psalm 52, 8, I trust in God's unfailing love. Hebrews 2, 13, I will put my trust in him. Trust, it's like when you get married, there's no guarantees to your marriage. I've had lots and lots, and when I used to teach and preach at a college environment, I had lots of 20-year-old, 20-somethings coming in. I don't know if I should marry this lady or this guy. I love him, but is this really who my marriage partner is? And ultimately, marriage boils down to, have you seen in the other person a basis of a character strength that allows you to know that you can trust that person's heart for the rest of your life? It's not based upon how much they love you or don't love you or whatever because you just have no clue about all of that. But look at that person. Spend time with that person. Pursue that person until you get to know, has this person got sand or concrete at the basis of their soul? When we trust God, we trust him that he's never going to change. He's always going to be who he is. There's nothing scarier than spend eternity with a God that wakes up every morning with a different mood. One day he likes you, the next day he can't stand you. That's a little scary. So you got to get to know who, what is the character of this God? Who is he? That's why we sort of come and we do the teaching thing here to remind us of who he is, who God is. Worship also means abandonment. Trust, secondly, abandonment. When I think of abandonment, the, 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 the whole scenario, I think I only did it once. That's why I learned never to abandon myself this way again. Is When I was a teenager, I got in the back of a motorcycle with my cousin. I hate being on the back of it. There's nothing more helpless to me than being on the back of, of a motorcycle that someone else is riding, driving. And there we are with our shorts and our flip-flops, and we're going down the freeway at 80 miles an hour on his, on his Honda, and I'm saying, if I ever get off of this, God, I promise you I will never put you through this again. I had to give it all away to trust my cousin that I would come back alive. That level of abandonment, I think, is where we need to picture ourselves with God. 
Philippians 3, I consider everything a loss. I just give it all away. I abandon everything compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. I want to know Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our bodies. For we who are alive are always being given over to death. We abandon even our own life. Acts 4, all the believers were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. They shared everything. They abandoned even their own possessions for Jesus. And the third thing is devotion. 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. Or Romans 12, keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Devotion is this holy longing. Devotion is this committed love that we have, this dedication, this loyalty, this enthusiasm, this fervor, the spark to our life. It's Mary Magdalene coming in at the party when everybody was preoccupied with food and, and drink and conversation, and she secretly comes into the feet of Jesus, and she pours that $30,000, $40,000 bottle of spicknard over his feet. That was her year's savings, the Bible says. Her savings wrapped up in this precious ointment. They didn't have banks in those days, so that's what they would do. They would buy something of value so they would retain its value. She gave her life savings over the feet of Jesus, poured it over him, dried his feet with her, with her hair, and at the same time of drying it, she was weeping over him because she believed that he was about the only one who believed that he was going to die in a few days. And Mary loved Jesus so much that she preferred flowers before funerals rather than flowers at the funeral. She had a personal connection with with Jesus. One last thing here. This is very important. Worship is not just a one-way street between you and God. Worship is also a corporate thing. With my body, I the worship. The attitude of worship, trust, abandonment, devotion are not only directed towards God, but they're directed towards his body. Ah, this is where it gets really tough. It's okay because God has never let us down, but churches certainly have. You want me to have that same abandonment towards them? You want me to have that same sense of devotion and, and, and commitment and, and abandonment and 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 attachment, all those things to the church. The church is that which hurt me. The church is the one that's been the source of so much of my frustration. It has given me guilt and shame all the time when it should have been giving me hope and promise. It's given me a list of things that didn't make any sense. It's hurt me. It's accused me. It's been in the way many times of my own spiritual growth. And you want me to have that same relationship to that?
Can I ask you a question? Have any of you who've been married at any length of time not had those same things happen to you in your marriage? Could you forgive? Could you release? Could you move on? Could you rebuild, restore, re-energize, re-hope, revision? In other words, God is asking us not only to learn to enter into this, but for God to enter into this, where we truly look around and say, here is the body of Christ. That honorary deacon, which we don't have deacons in this church, so that's why I can use that as an illustration. That honorary deacon still has a spark of Christ in him. Let me go find where that spark is. Let me reconnect to that person. Let me be re-energized by seeing and sensing what God is doing in his life. Let me celebrate the fact that he may be ornery today, but he was downright mean 10 years ago. Or whatever. Do you get it? Personal, corporate. We learn to dance with one another. We party with one another. We eat and drink together. We celebrate our victories. We grieve our losses together. Always together. Why? Because we have learned to trust God and to abandon ourselves to him, to his heart, and to cement ourselves through devotion to God to this divine body called the church. Wow. I should have stopped with just the ones, right? Remember that time when Jesus saw little shrimpy Zacchaeus up in the tree? And he said to Zacchaeus or Zacchaeus, whichever way you want to go, when, when I was a two-year-old and a four-year-old, it was Zacchaeus. He said, Zacchaeus, come down, for I'm going to your house today. Now, Zacchaeus was a thief. He was a traitor. There's not one good thing that Zacchaeus had ever done in his adult life. He was just somebody you wanted to punch. And you know why he was up in the tree? Because if he knew he was in that crowd trying to see Jesus go by that sycamore tree that day, guess what would have happened? Levi would have seen him coming, and just about the time he got there, oh, I was just stretching, Zacchaeus, sorry about that. Somebody else would have stuck their foot out and knocked him to the ground. I mean, he would not have made it in the crowd. Jesus says to him, Zach, I'm going to your house today. Now, for you and I, that's somewhat of a casual thing. But to a Jewish male, this is ultimate significant. The Jewish have a saying called the mikdash miat. And when you're a... a traditional or cultural Jew, you don't invite people into your home until they have finally become your most intimate, safe friend that will never abandon you and never let you down. In other words, it takes years for you to get invited to a Jewish man's home because it symbolized the fact that Jesus and Zacchaeus were united in an unbroken bond from that day forward. And honestly, 
Zacchaeus was not the kind of guy you wanted to spend lunch with. But then I'm looking around and neither are you. And neither am I. But Jesus says, Bob, will you come down out of that tree? I want to go to your house and I want to share soul oneness with you. That's what worship is. Let's pray.